Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. Certainly a, a great song for us to... Uh, to conclude on, particularly today. We're going to be celebrating communion today. Uh, and I say it's a great song to conclude on because not only are we a people not ashamed to admit that we need the Lord, but that's really the whole point of our faith is that we need the Lord. And we're going to celebrate that today with, uh, with communion. We are in the book of Proverbs, though, prior to jumping into a time of the Lord's table. So you can turn in your Bibles to chapter 24 of the book of Proverbs. It's good to be back with you again. I was away last weekend and Kevin uh, filled in for us and I'd encourage if you weren't with us, Kevin did a teaching on Colossians chapter 1, which I'd encourage you to go back and listen to um, because I think it's valuable. Um, so that, that was a good time together and I thank you for your prayers in my absence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider your word and, and Lord, we do proclaim that we are a people that need you. We are a people that acknowledge that our sin has separated us from a holy God and that unless there was a holy offering made in our stead, Lord, that there would be no hope for us, no chance for us. And Lord Jesus, you came while we were yet sinners and you died for us. And not only did you make a way, Lord, you taught us a way as well to live here on the earth and you've given us words of wisdom that we can uh, meditate on and, and walk therein. And so, Lord, we thank you for a book like the book of Proverbs, in particular, communicating to us such valuable words of wisdom, the way in which we should go. And, Lord, we do pray that you administer to our hearts now as we dig in once again to this book. Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts to receive. Lord, we pray that the busyness of life uh, that is around us, things we've got to do today, things we're doing this week, all of those things would be put aside so that we might hear from you. And we do pray that you would minister into the deep places of our hearts. And Father, I do ask that uh, as your word goes forth, that you would challenge us and, and you'd give us the courage, Lord, to walk in faith and to respond in obedience uh, to each of the things that you direct our hearts uh, toward today. And we pray that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are blind so we need our glasses here. We, we are in chapter 24. Now, in the book of Proverbs, you remember, there's a series of sections. There was one in particular section that began in chapter 22. I don't know why, but it begins about halfway through chapter 22, runs through chapter 23, and then continues into about half of chapter 24. It is what it is. I would have begun a new chapter, but nobody asked me to write the Bible. Uh, or to designate what verses go where, and so on. So in the middle of chapter 22, about verse 17, was this beginning section, 30 sayings, additional sayings of Solomon that he wanted to share with us. Our goal was to study it into two studies, but we didn't finish up last time. So we need to finish up that, and then we'll conclude the rest of the chapter this morning. We left off in verse 17 of chapter 24. Let me read it to you. It says, Do not rejoice... When your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Now, again, we are in a section, 
And unlike much of the book of Proverbs, in this particular book of Proverbs, section of the book, context is important. And so we need to know the verses that came before this particular verse. And so verses 14, 15, and 16 likely are going to have an impact on verses 17, 18, 19, or, or what have you. Again, that's not the typical way it's been in our study of the book of Proverbs. Usually it's just one verse sort of standing by itself. But in this instance, context is very important. So if you look back to verse 15, you saw there, we saw there if you were with us, that the wicked lies in wait to take advantage of others in their misfortune. So the wicked individual will see a person struggling, having difficulty, and see it as their golden opportunity to take advantage of them. Now, I can get from them something I wouldn't have been able to get from them if they weren't in a time of difficulty. And Solomon says that's what the wicked person does. And so the implication is righteous person, person seeking to walk with the Lord, don't do such things. That's the simple instruction. Don't do that. Don't lie in wait for another's misfortune so you can take advantage of their difficult circumstance. Okay, so that was your takeaway. Don't do it. Now, here in verse 17 and 18, Solomon addresses now the tendency of the righteous to take pleasure in the calamity of others. Have you ever done that? Have you ever taken pleasure in the calamity of another person? Yeah, of course you have. I know you. You're a bunch of sinners like me. Yes. There are instances where somebody that is your enemy, somebody that has made it their goal to stick it to you, now gets it themselves. And how do you respond? Now, if you're really spiritual, you just kind of cover your mouth and you give a little snicker or whatever. Or you go into your bedroom and you do one of these things and you're fired up, you're excited that they're finally getting it and you're rejoicing in that. So notice it says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. So to put those verses in context, it's as if a person is saying, all right, all right, I won't take advantage of them in their calamity, but I sure will enjoy watching them when it comes upon them. And as Solomon said, don't take advantage of them in their calamity. Essentially what he's saying here is, yeah, don't do that either. Don't rejoice in their calamity. And so the instruction is then never to rejoice at someone else's misfortune, even your enemy's misfortune. Because Solomon says, it displeases the Lord. That's what he says. Lest the Lord see it and be displeased. So our, not, our natural desire then, as men and women, as natural men and women, even we may be born-again believers, but we're still natural men and women who have a fleshly desire that seeks to reign. Our natural man or woman is to see, in the natural, is to see vindication come. That's what we want to see. We want wrongs to be righted. We want to feel that people deserve to get what is coming to them. They deserve it, and we want to see and feel them get it. And so that's natural. When our enemy is getting what they deserve, our tendency is to want to rejoice in that vindication in the natural man. In Christ, however, we're no longer natural men and women. Amen? We are, but we're not, right? We're not supposed to be any longer. He still reigns. She still reigns in our lives. So in Christ, we're no longer to be natural men and women, but spiritual men or women. New life has been birthed into the spiritual man. So the desire then of the spiritual man, now this, I don't, this is not easy for me, I'm just telling you. The desire then of the spiritual man is not to see vindication come, but to see repentance come. That should be our desire. I want my enemy to repent of their sin so that they can cry out to God for mercy 
so that he can show him mercy. Is that normally your prayer? It is? That's not my prayer. I don't want them to see you. I, uh, let them go to jail first, Lord. Then they can get some mercy. You know, I want them to have to pay. But the Lord says, no, no. The spiritual man's heart is that they might repent and receive God's mercy. Because the spiritual man knows that they have been a recipient of God's grace. Great amounts of God's grace. The longer you walk with the Lord, the closer you get to the Lord, the more grace you realize you have been shown and are being shown. Old believers, you know that, right? Those of us that have walked with the Lord longer and are growing closer to him, we know, man, he shows me a lot of grace. And he has shown me a lot of grace. We had no idea how big a sinner we were when we got saved. He just keeps revealing more and more and more and showing more grace. And so the spiritual man knows, I've received so much grace, and our hope, our desire is that our enemy will be a recipient of that grace as well. So we're not rooting for them to get it. We're rooting for them to receive God's grace. Now that's a piece of cake, right? Hardly a piece of cake. But it's certainly it's an attitude of the heart that the Lord desires that we each have. And so if you find that's not the attitude of my heart, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's the attitude of your heart that he wants you to have. And so if it's not the attitude of your heart, then you need to jot a note in your little journal. This is a matter of prayer that you have to take to the Lord. Lord, my heart's not like that. I want it to be like that. Change my heart. Do you think you pray that prayer? That's a prayer the Lord will hear? Certainly he'll hear it. He hears everything. Do you think that's a Lord he wants to answer? It is. All right, and the Lord says, you pray anything according to my will, I hear such a prayer. I, I respond to such a prayer. Start praying that prayer. If that's not the attitude of your heart or you find it very difficult to have such an attitude, pray, and the Lord can change your heart from the inside out. It's good news. Verse 19 and 20 goes on. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked. For the evil man has no future, and the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Fret not yourself. I like the word fret. That's all I wanted to say. I just like the word. What I'm supposed to do it, though. It's hard, though. Sometimes it just happens. Now, interesting, these same words, almost word for word, David told to Solomon, addressed to Solomon in Psalm 37. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Almost word for word, uh, the same instructions. And so here, he gives the instruction. Now, here's the general instruction. Don't worry if the evil man seems to be getting away with a lot. His days are numbered and his time is limited. That's a general instruction. And so you're, you're living your life. You're trying to honor the Lord. You're nice to other people. You don't bother. You don't cause any trouble. And you're seeing wicked people get ahead. Wicked people advance. They get all the money. They get all the positions of power, whatever. And you look and you're like, that's not right. And so then you, if you're normal, you begin to think, well, maybe I'm doing it wrong, or God, this isn't fair, or where are you, Lord? Maybe I should start cutting corners. Maybe I should start mistreating people and so on. Well, here's the instruction. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Don't, don't get all tied up about who's getting ahead or who's not getting ahead. Even if they are getting ahead, the wicked person's days are numbered. And then they will, so to speak, get theirs. And the idea then would be this. Here's your admonition. Run your race and fix your eyes on heaven, not on those that are around you, not who's getting ahead that shouldn't be or, or whatever. Run your race and fix your eyes on heaven and don't allow the temporal things to get you off course. 
good, helpful advice. I think it keeps our hearts, our minds, it keeps us focused on things that really matter, eternal things, because that's only what really matters. Verse 21 and 2, let's read on. It says, My son, fear the Lord and the King, and do not join with those who do otherwise, for disaster will arise suddenly from them, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. Now, this is the last admonition of those 30 sayings. Remember back in chapter 22:17, I want to give you 30 more sayings. This third section of the book of Proverbs, last admonition, and the admonition is simply to fear the Lord and to honor the king. And so quite simply, we are told that wise men, women, revere and respect authority. And they do not set out to do otherwise. Now, that's an interesting phrase there. In the ESV, it's worded, uh, with those who do otherwise. It's a term which means given to change. And so it says, uh, my son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those that are given to change. And the idea that is seeking to be communicated there, it's a person who seeks to throw off authority They're given to change. They want to change authority, typically to replace it with themselves. They want to be the one authority. And this isn't talking about, you know, I'm thinking of running for political office. It's not talking about that sort of thing. What it's talking about is a person who doesn't want to be controlled by anybody. I don't want anyone else to tell me what to do. I don't want the Lord to tell me what to do. I don't want my boss to tell me what to do. I do my own thing. They're given to change. They would throw off, if they could, all authority. And we know from our study of the scriptures that such a, a, an attitude of the heart is a heart that comes from the place of pride. And we know how destructive pride is in a person's life. It's destructive to our own lives, and it's destructive to those that are in the immediate vicinity of us as well, our families or what have you. And so the admonition then is fear the Lord and honor those that are in authority, honor the king. Now, as I said, that brings us to the end then of this section, verse 22. But Solomon does still have some more wisdom for us, another six or so chapters, including in this chapter, another 10 or so verses. And so let's take a look at those, starting in verse 23. He's going to give us four additional subjects. They're going to be this, showing partiality, counting the cost of an endeavor, being a prejudicial witness, and then the danger of slothfulness. Now, I know you're excited about the slothfulness topic because we haven't looked at it much in the study of Proverbs yet, as you probably don't know. Let me read through these verses, okay? Starting in verse 23. It says, These also are sayings of the wise. Partiality in judging is not good. Whoever says to the wicked, You are in the right, will be cursed by peoples and abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. Whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. Verse 27, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. 28, be not a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. And verse 30, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, 
and want like an armed man. Now going back and looking at those, the first of those was the idea of showing partiality. And particularly in the area of equity and justice, showing partiality or impartiality in the areas of equity and justice. The verse, first part of the verse of 23 says, excuse me, second part, it says partiality in judging is not good. Now as subjects, and most of us are subjects or citizens of our society, most of us aren't rulers necessarily, but as subjects, we are expected to do our duty. We understand that. We follow the rules, we keep the laws, and we don't get in trouble for not doing so. We're expected to do what we do, and we do it. Well, in the very same way, those in authority are expected to do what they're supposed to do as well. And so this idea here of civil officers and, justice, and judges, if citizens are expected to obey, obey the law, even more so judges and those in authority are to see to it that those laws are administered rightly and properly. Somebody has said this, that a good judge will know the truth, not the faces. A good judge will know the truth, not the faces. The idea there being this, it doesn't matter who comes before him or her, that judge. It doesn't matter who comes before them or what their face looks like. The idea being there, are they a friend of his or her or not? Are they an influential person or aren't they? Are they the right skin color or not? It doesn't matter that a good judge will know the truth, not the faces. What matters to a good judge, what's the truth? What's the law say on that particular matter? And that's what they've been charged to administer, and that's what they do administer. And so he goes on now, and he develops the idea by giving us an example. This is verse 24. He says, whoever says to the wicked, you are right, will be cursed by the peoples, abhorred by the nations. Now, the presumption for the purposes of this proverb is that this wicked person is in the wrong. And yet, despite the fact that they are wrong, notice what the judge says about them, the exact opposite, says, you are in the right. And in, that, and in that, they are attempting then to show them partiality. Again, the verse says, whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by the people. Clearly wrong, and yet the judge says they're in the right. Now, a good judge is going to do this. They're going to merit, uh, weigh the merits of a cause. They're not going to be swayed one way or the other by the parties that are involved. Doesn't matter how powerful they are, doesn't matter how rich they are, doesn't matter if they're the right type of person standing in front of them, the merits of the case will decide the case. When the children of Israel were coming up out of Egypt and making their way through the desert, a system of government was created for them. The Lord revealed it to Moses, Moses presented it to the people. And essentially that system of government was in the hands of Moses. And so as God spoke to Moses, Moses would then speak to the people. And then the people would bring every matter to Moses, whether it was a small matter or a great matter, and they would say, Moses, give us direction on this particular situation here. Now, eventually, the load of that, as Moses is leading four and a half million people, perhaps, through the wilderness, the, the load of that became too great for Moses to bear. And Moses' father-in-law is visiting in town one day, seeing what Moses is dealing with every day, and finally says, man, you've got to get yourself some help. He says, you, you can't do this all alone. You need other people to come alongside of you and assist you. Specifically, this is Exodus 18. He said this, look for able men from all the people, 
men who fear the Lord, fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter, let them handle. They can decide it for themselves. Thus it'll be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Now notice he's setting up this system of lesser judges, so to speak. And notice what he wants of those judges. Able men, women here, we, in our day perhaps, able men who fear the Lord, are trustworthy, and hate a bribe. That's good, solid advice. Wouldn't it be great if all of our uh, elected officials and judges were such people? You know, the qualifications, you had to be president 35 years old, live in the country 14 years, born here. You know, no, let's throw it out. We just want able people who fear the Lord, are trustworthy, and hate a bribe. I think that that would be pretty good. But who am I? I'm not James Madison. All right, he had, I'm sure he had his reasons for what he selected here. But just good, solid advice. And Moses latched on to this idea of his father-in-law that he get the right kind of helpers to administer God's law. And so Moses wrote this. Now that was Exodus, I think, 18. This is Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy is the second stating, if you will, of the law. Deuteronomy, it has this idea of the second giving of the law. Leviticus is sort of at the start of the, uh, the journey to the promised land. Deuteronomy is as they're about to go into the promised land 40 years later. And so there Moses says this, chapter 1, among other things, he says, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And so ingrained into the thinking of the Jewish people and the law of the Jewish people is the importance of a judge not showing partiality. Because again, a good judge will see the truth, not the faces. Remember that expression that I shared just a few minutes ago? A good judge will never have a different set of rules for the great person than they have for the small person, so to speak. And they're not going to be intimidated by the rich or the powerful or the popular or the connected, and they're not going to ignore the rights of one uh, while showing benefits to another. Now, I know many of us are never going to serve as judges, and so this is just good information for us in, in, in some regard. But I do think the point should be taken nonetheless. That we should never, as followers of Christ, we should never show partiality or preferential treatment to others based on who we perceive that person to be or what we think that person has to offer us. Truth must reign. Truth must reign in the life of the believer. And we know that, don't we? We appreciate that and we expect that from others toward us. What Solomon is telling us here is it needs to be a non-negotiable in our lives as well, in how we treat and sh what we show to other people. Amen? All right, let's go on. Verse 27. This is the second, then, of these little ideas at the end of this chapter. He says, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. Now, this used to be commonly a verse uh, that was presented to young men that expressed an interest in getting married. And the pastor would read this particular verse, and he would essentially say to that young man, are you prepared to bring another, so to speak, under your care? Prepare your house, out, your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. Make sure you have your job. Make sure you have 
the stability that you need, and then you can go forward. Common understanding of this particular verse, Jesus communicated a similar idea in Luke chapter 14 that this verse is communicating. Verse 28 of Luke 14 says this, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. I remember when I was a kid, there was a set of woods over on Carlton Avenue. Uh, which is over by the college here. Some of you probably took Carlton Avenue to get here. There was a set of woods across the street there, and I was probably 10, 11 years old, and one day all the trees were gone. I was like, look at that. And it, I took notice of that. I always take notice of things. I asked my wife. She's like, you take notice of things. And I did. I was like, well, I know why all the trees are down. So all the trees are down. Next thing you know, the trucks are in there, and they're digging up the ground, and all these little pipes are starting to come up out of the ground. And my dad explained that they're going to build like four or five houses at that spot. I thought, oh, that's neat. I look forward to seeing those four or five houses. Then three months and five months and a year and three years and five years goes by. Nothing was ever built on there. And it turned out the person ran out of money and couldn't continue their particular project. And it always stuck with me. I'm 10, 15 years old, whatever. I was a little guy. And it always just stuck with me. If you were going to start, why didn't you make sure you had enough to finish? Am I the only one? It just seemed foolish to a 10-year-old kid. Or whatever. And this verse, Jesus' words here, if you're going to start, count the cost. Make sure that you can bring it to completion. Otherwise, what my dad and I used to do, we were nice people, so it wasn't so bad, but we mocked essentially the guy that started that. I hope it's nobody here that started that. You know, maybe this change of plans or whatever. But we sort of laughed at the idea. Why would you even begin a job if you can't finish the particular job? I'm sorry if I offended anyone. It's just something I remember when I was little. So the word of wisdom then is this, whether it's in Luke or whether it's back in Proverbs, the word of wisdom is counting the cost before embarking on an endeavor, lest the, the undertaking be too great and you end up being unable to finish. That's the word of wisdom. Count the cost first. Henry Ironside said this poetically, I think, he describes such a failure as starting but not being able to finish as a monument of folly in the end. And, and I'm pretty sure those pipes that stuck out of the ground stayed there for years, five, six, seven years, until the college eventually bought it and put down rocks so they could park cars there or something or another. But so the, anyway, the idea that I, I shared with you is this, and the question I would ask of you is this, I think you should ask of yourself, are you willing and able to pay that amount in the end? count the cost. And it goes way beyond just financial. Count the cost. That decision you're about to make and that path it's going to lead you down and the things you're going to get involved with. Do you want to get involved with those things? You sure? Play it out. Count the cost. Now there's a second admonition here as well in verse uh, 20, in chapter 24, and that's to ask yourself this, even if I can afford it, should I afford it? Is this something I should be involved with anyway? Yeah, I counted the cost. It's exactly what I want to do. All right, so, okay, so you can afford it. Are you sure you should afford such a thing? So again, it says, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field, and after that, build your house. Now, a couple of things you should know. The field worker would typically live in a tent, not in a house. Either the field was separate from the little city that they were from, or they themselves lived out in a rural area, and they would live in a tent of some form there. 
And that tent would meet that person's necessities. A place at night to lay down, you know, sheltered from the rain or the dew or what have you. That was the purpose of it, and that's what it did. It accomplished it. A house then would go beyond necessity to the place of luxury. Now, you do want to certainly be careful with this. This is not an admonition against having a house or something a little more spacious or something a little more comfortable than a tent might be, something a little more permanent than a tent might be. That's not what this is getting at here. The admonition, admonition is this. Before you begin considering and acquiring luxuries in your life, make sure your responsibilities have first been met. That's the admonition. It says, get everything ready in the field. If you want to have a nice place to lay your head, a house is better than a tent. If you want to have a nice place to lay your head, that's certainly fine. Just make sure all of your other responsibilities are first met before you go spending your money on luxuries there. And I think this is a good, helpful reminder in our day. It goes beyond getting a house, friends. It's, I got to have the newest phone. I got to have the this. I got to have the that. Your kid needs new shoes. Well, he's going to have to deal with it. I didn't have shoes when I was a kid. You see what I'm saying? We get all these luxuries, but necessities have to be met first. And I think it's a helpful reminder in our day and age because our day and age appeals so much to our senses to get that next purchase, to get that new thing, to get that new status symbol. Deal with your necessities first and make sure you have first met those responsibilities, those obligations outside in the field, so to speak, before you move to that place of luxury. Straightforward? Yeah, that's good news. Or, I don't know if it's good news, but it's good advice. Certainly so. Verse 28 and 29, it says, Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause, and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. Third topic here, being a true and faithful witness. Now, there's three instructions here regarding a witness. Number one, never be a witness against another without cause. Okay? Now, it doesn't say never be a witness against another. Because there are times you may be called to testify against another person on behalf of somebody else. And that person's certainly going to appreciate your testimony. So it doesn't say never be a witness against another person. It says never be a witness against another without cause. All right? So don't, uh, if there's nothing rightfully to be testified against them, don't testify against them. Number two, he says, do not deceive with your lips. And this is the idea of not lying against another person. It should go without saying, but don't do it if you were contemplating. I was thinking of lying about people today and against people. Don't do it. The third idea addresses our tendency to want to get even. And so lying about another person, that's wrong. Getting even with another that has previously wronged us, that seems a little bit justified, doesn't it? Well, they wronged me. I'm going to get them back. Here's Solomon's instructions. Again, he says, do not say I'll do to him as he has done to me. I'll pay him back for what he has done. Now this, I would suggest to you, like earlier, is higher level spirituality. Under no circumstances should anyone ever bring a false accusation against their neighbor, lie against their neighbor. And I think we all understand that. But Solomon takes it a step further here, and he says this, even if there is an occasion to bring an action against someone, to testify against someone, Solomon says, don't do it if it's coming from a spirit of revenge. Isn't that interesting? So if in your heart there is a level of malice 
and you want to get even with that guy, even if you think you have some justification there from doing so, Solomon says, don't do it. And so what our takeaway is this, even a righteous cause can become an unrighteous cause if it stems from a place of malice or retaliation. And again, I think that's higher level spirituality. That's the Lord saying, let's dig down in deep and deal with some attitudes of your heart. We know the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay to the Lord. And our responsibility then is to leave vindication, leave retaliation with the Lord. If God wants to execute judgment on that person, well, that's his prerogative. Our responsibility is to leave it with him. Not easy, but nevertheless what we're called to do. Verse 30, lest we run out of time, it says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, oh boy, here we go, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, the ground covered with nettles, its stone wall broken down. I saw, I considered, I looked, I received a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. Again, last topic of the chapter has to do with slothfulness, sluggardliness, depending on the version that you're reading. As we've been looking through the book of Proverbs, we see that the most, according to Solomon, the most common cause of poverty in a person's life is laziness. That's what Solomon gives us throughout the study of this book, sluggardliness, um, slothfulness here. Now, specifically, let's draw our attention to what he says here. First, we have some information about the author. And he says this, I pass by the field and behold. A couple verses later, a little bit later, he says, I saw and I considered, I looked and I received instructions. I saw and I pondered, I thought about these things. I saw and I considered. Now, here is a guy that is the wisest man in the world, in the history of the world. And yet notice, he's still learning. He's still receiving instruction. Now certainly we know that Solomon was gifted with wisdom. But if he weren't, let's say God didn't give him wisdom, I still think he would be way up there because Solomon is doing what the wisest of individuals do. And that is they keep learning. And they keep going further and keep going further. Wise individuals never stop learning. And here's a guy with enough wisdom to write a book for us as he has done, and yet he's still learning. And that person, as he's going to give instruction, those that are give, to give instruction must first be actively receiving instruction for themselves. Never stop learning. Second thing that we learn from Solomon's example is that wise people make it a point to learn by observing others. And so the principle that is out there, you do this, this is the result. A wise person can learn from your example. They don't have to go through that themselves. And so they learn from positive examples and negative examples, and they apply those things to their lives. The wise individual re recognizes they can receive instruction, not only from what they read or hear, but also from what they observe. Again, both positive and negative. And wise men avoid looking like fools because they've seen what happens to the fool and they don't want to go there. Now, I think we do need to stop and consider the sluggard. I know we've said many times here, but we do have to look at the sluggard. Notice Solomon says in observing the field of the sluggard that it becomes apparent that the sluggard is lacking in sense. And he, he's asking essentially, well, what did this guy think was going to happen? What did he think was going to happen if he never cut his lawn for the summer? It would grow unmanageable. What did he think would happen if he never went out and weeded the garden? Well, the thorns, the weeds, they would take over. If you don't get out and care for your field, what do you think is going to happen? 
if your wall begins to show signs of decay? Do you think it's just going to rebuild itself? No. Are the neighbors going to come volunteer? Probably not. All right, if the wall is showing signs of decay, the wall is going to decay. And to think otherwise is nonsensical. Solomon says the sluggard there, he lacks sense. And so we know the reality is by failing to consistently till your ground and monitor it for thorns and nettles. I don't even know what nettles are, but don't, they're not good, uh, apparently so. But thorns and weeds, then the ground becomes overgrown with thorns and weeds. And failing to properly maintain your wall means the wall is going to fall down. Notice those two things directly correlated in verse 34 with the poverty that it comes. It says a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and poverty will come upon you. So those thorns, those weeds, that wall that that was coming down, all of those directly connected with the poverty that came upon this individual. So with Solomon, then, we have to consider the same thing Solomon was considering. How did this happen? Was there some unfortunate event? The guy was doing great, but then, you know, he broke his leg and he was laid up all summer and he couldn't get out there. Was he called away overseas? You know, a family member was sick and he had to go and he made, had no time to be able to take care of his property, get someone to take care of his property. We see here the reason why these things came, the cause of it, was because the man himself said, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. The man himself, he didn't have to travel somewhere far away by some emergent situation. He just needed a little more sleep, a couple more snoozes on that button there. And notice he's asking for just a little more sleep. Not, I want to take this summer off. I work hard every summer. Just a little more sleep. Ten more minutes. Eight minutes, I think, on many of our snooze alarms. Just eight more minutes and I'll be good. The problem is this. A little more and a little here and a little more here and a little more on top of that, pretty soon becomes a lot, doesn't it? A bunch of littles pretty soon adds up to quite a lot. And how frequently we find ourselves making excuses, promises. I promise tomorrow I'll do it. I just need a little bit more sleep in this particular day. And the reality is tomorrow comes and we're right back where we were the day before, just asking for a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And again, the little more generally becomes much more. And so here's this sluggard sleeping when he should have been out laboring. And sadly but predictably, he's going to awaken too late to realize his wasted opportunities have passed him by. I thought Alexander McLaren said it well, and I, so I jotted it down. It's nothing profound, but I still like how he said it. He said, the head that drowsily drops back on the pillow after he has heard the morning's call is likely to lie there long. Now, not by and by is the time to shake off the bonds of sloth and to cultivate our garden. And of course, this applies to the normal day-in and day-out responsibilities that we have, but it most especially applies to our spiritual lives. Our souls are those fields and those vineyards that we need to be diligent to take care of and to guard and to keep. Because if we fail to take care of our souls and guard our souls, then we will succumb to the same perils of the physical, that the physical field succumbed to as well that Solomon describes here. Don't be lazy spiritually. Dig into your spiritual walk. Till the fields. Deal with the weeds. If the walls are starting to fall down, get out there and stabilize those walls again to protect yourself from the attack of the enemy and from our own flesh. That's the problem. The enemy lives inside of the vineyard. 
And every night he's out there chipping away at the wall or whatever. And every morning you're like, there's that hole again. And you're the one who did it. And so we got to guard against these things. Guard against the weeds. Guard against the flesh. Guard against the enemy, the devil that comes against us here. And once we stop guarding ourselves, we set ourselves up for a fall. A little slumber. It's the accumulation of the littles that makes a lot. Now, can I say one other thing? There's a very encouraging thing about this as well. And that is a little good thing, like a whole bunch of little good things adds up to a lot of good things. And so you, you think to yourself, well, what's one quiet time going to do? How's it really going to help me? You have a quiet time every day for a year, your life is transformed. Bunch of little things, negative, add up to a lot of negatives, but a bunch of positive little things add up as well. And so use it as a positive encouragement principle. Pour into your spiritual walk and you will see spiritual growth. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. We're going to bring the worship team back up. Uh, and we're going to have communion together this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that truth. Lord, you love us. You want good things for us. You've given us your word to guide and direct us. And Lord, we know that uh, our flesh wars against the things of the Spirit. And yet in that, our spirit has been made alive and there's that continual prodding of the Holy Spirit. This is the way, walk ye therein. This is the way, walk ye therein. And Lord, you desire good things for each one of us. And so Lord, uh, we want to walk in those things. So bless our study of Proverbs this morning. Use these words in ways, profound ways that go far beyond our time here together, this week even. Uh, but years into our future, use your word to transform our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone. <laughs>